This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 18th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Independent contractors are increasingly critical to a smoothly functioning economy, and the rules that govern independent contracting could be quite a bit simpler for the people who choose that kind of work. Those states and the feds are actively considering ways to penalize workers just for being independent. Scott Linscomb is author of a chapter in Cato's book, Empowering the New American Worker. We spoke last week. Scott, you may recall there was a piece of legislation in California called AB5. And uh, that piece of legislation pretty significantly limited the amount, that is to say the dollar value of independent work people could do for any given uh, contractor. That is uh, for musicians who play gigs in bars, people who write short pieces for uh, publication and get paid by those those uh, publications as a contract employee. That is a more of an arm's length relationship than a lot of uh, employees have that you and I have with uh, Cato, for example. Um, and Joe Biden championed it. And it hit right before right. a pandemic. And it was for independent workers, I think, for the most part, a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, um, now, uh, apparently, congressional Democrats want to nationalize AB5, um, which is, uh, like you said, given the uh, fallout from AB5 um, in terms of protests by port truckers who don't want to be traditional employees or mass layoffs of freelancers at various um, online publications located in California, or the frantic scrambling of the California legislature to exempt all sorts of occupations from AB5's rules. Uh, it's been a, a giant mess. And yet, if you look at um, what congressional Democrats tried to do via legislation in this uh, bill called the PRO Act, uh, which essentially codifies AB, AB5 nationwide, or by regulation, this proposed Labor Department rule that the Biden administration issued now about a month ago that does as much uh, AB5-ing as you can do under current law, which pretty much everybody agrees doesn't allow for um, the uh, the tests that AB5 applies. Um, if you'd listen to the, the folks that are championing all this stuff, you'd think that AB5 was a great success. Um, and you'd really, you'd think that independent contracting is a really terrible form of work, that it is an exploitative arrangement by monopsonistic employers and unwilling uh, American workers that are essentially forced to be independent contractors, to be denied various labor protections under the Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA, um, are denied overtime protections and mandated benefits under Obamacare and the rest that this these poor poor workers are underpaid and completely unprotected in the American workforce and thus we basically need to eliminate uh, these jobs um, if not entirely then then dramatically scaled back right 
Uh, and, you know, as, as one of the big themes of, of my new book, Empowering the New American Worker, is that policymakers really misunderstand the, much of the American workforce, right? That, that it, it, they really don't seem to have a good grasp on what a lot, millions, tens of millions of American workers want to do in terms of work and how they want to do it and the rest. And I think independent work is probably the best example of that. Um, because if you, if you look at the actual numbers, uh, and polling and the rest and economic studies on independent work, it's really nothing like that caricature I just mentioned. That's the impetus for AB5, the PRO Act and the Biden administration rules. Um, the fact is that, I mean, first, um, tens of millions of Americans uh, engage in independent work each year, a number that has increased dramatically during the pandemic. Uh, we're now looking at 50 million or so Americans have engaged in some sort of independent work uh, last year. Um, but beyond that, it is hardly this uh, low-paid gig work situation that American workers are forced into. Uh, that you know, sure, gig work exists, and quite frankly, gig work's kind of great for a lot of reasons. But uh, less than ten percent, according to the IRS, of independent contracting jobs are in gig work. Uh, you know, Uber drivers and and the rest. Um, so, thus, ninety percent or more are actually in different forms of independent work. Yeah. So, uh, of course, Uber drivers, be, Uber Lyft drivers, being the sort of the classic example, yeah. but. Uh, uh, your yard guy, if you have a yard guy, yeah. uh, uh, other people who tutors that you might hire for your children. Yeah. Any any number of, of uh, uh, avenues of exchange where you essentially have an arm's length relationship with someone to perform a service uh, for you yes. or for your or for your business. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned a yard guy and a tutor, and those are, of course, uh, uh, classic examples. But the big change over the last decade is the rise of white collar independent workers, um, especially in tech, you know, software developers, um, and, uh, a lot of artistic positions, marketing and, as well. Um, and what we found is that uh, in, in, in the book, we showed that um, these folks are really dominating in, in the, the independent work sector these days. And by the way, they're making great money doing so via freelance platforms like Upwork, for example. Um, and the, the Wall Street Journal this year did this great report on the rise of six-figure contractors. I mean, these are folks that are making more than $100,000 a year um, doing this kind of white-collar gig work, right? That um, And that again, is by far um, the more prevalent form of independent work as compared to this low-wage, part-time gig work that gets all the attention. So to empower American workers uh, broadly who would like to engage in this work, and I, I would be remiss if I did not mention uh, Vanessa Brown Calder, our colleague, this is a, this is a big part of her uh, portfolio, which is uh, a, a showing... Yeah that for for many workers especially mothers 
the the flexibility yeah. that is offered with that kind of arm's length relationship can be extremely valuable. Yes, and empowering, right? That's the, you know, when when gig workers and independent workers more broadly are pulled, they repeatedly say that they want to do this type of work. They are happy with this work. They're satisfied with their work arrangements. And like you said, a big reason for that is flexibility in terms of scheduling, in terms of business location, uh, and also control. Uh, they control when they work, they control how they work, they control their clients, they uh, have a far more autonomy and freedom when it comes to their working relationships. And that's a big deal for working parents. Uh, it, it's a huge deal, but for all sorts of workers as well. There was a great study cited in, in the chapter on independent work in the book um, that Hold Uber drivers. So let's go back to gig workers again. And uh, they they tried to figure out how much it would take in terms of compensation for uh, Uber drivers to move to a uh, more traditional taxi cab company. And it was something like 40% of a pay increase, uh, about $150 a week, they would have to be paid to give up the flexibility and control that Uber gave those workers. And then again, this, this extends way out of gig work. So that's the other big misunderstanding about um, about independent work. People are doing this because they want to do it. That the vast majority of independent workers totally understand the trade-offs, right? They totally understand that they're not going to have FILSA, the FLSA protections, and they won't have these mandated benefits, and they are going to have to uh, figure out their own 401ks and health benefits and the rest. But they're they're gladly accepting that trade-off because they get uh, more control and they get more flexibility in, in those working relationships. Um, and oh, by the way, the studies show that they still are getting benefits either through a spouse or through open, you know, private or government markets. Uh, and they even say that they're their work is more stable and better paying. So this is not, again, this exploitative arrangement um, that that it's so often made out to be. You mentioned, we, we talked about AB5 a little bit. The PRO Act is in part yeah. a nationalization of that kind of arrangement, which makes it, uh, right. if if not it, more punitive to try to maintain that kind of independent arm's length relationship that independent work uh, facilitates. But uh, there are a lot of things that states do or can do to make uh, independent work harder or easier. Right. And the big one here and, and is that uh, is tax treatment, right? Um, current tax law is just simply not designed, and that's at the federal and state level, simply not really designed for an independent work environment. Um, it really ignores, again, those that, that we now have tens of millions of independent workers. Upwork um, projects that in the next decade, about half of the workforce could be independent workers. Tax law doesn't reflect any of this. Um, it is very difficult uh, 
to compared to a standard employee to file your taxes and to file it correctly. Uh, you can be on the hook for major penalties if you don't file your estimated taxes properly. Um, I, I know this actually uh, personally because I have done some independent work on the side for, for more than a decade. Um, all of those types of tax issues um, discourage independent work. They increase the cost of engaging in independent work. Um, they discourage people from perhaps moving from jurisdiction to jurisdiction um, because of this type of disparate tax treatment. So uh, what we propose is, you know, instead of trying to uh, condemn or eliminate independent work, policymakers at the federal and state level should really be thinking creatively about how to make uh, independent work easier and and really just to level the playing field with standard employees. You know, we're not asking, uh, and we certainly wouldn't want the government to put the thumb on the scales for independent workers overall. Um, but instead, it's just creating a, a, a parity, uh, you know, creating equal treatment for both independent workers and traditional workers. Uh, and so that includes things like creating a, a standard business deduction um, that independent workers can take so they don't have to worry about estimated taxes. They don't have to worry about um, their, you know, itemizing their expenses down to the, to the last nickel um, that uh, they could um, also uh, take on voluntary withholding. That's another idea out there. Um, thus, you know, for example, a wedding photographer um, could have uh, it's his his or her taxes with, withheld or might not. Um, they can choose to do that. Again, just simplifying tax treatment so that those headaches that exist now with independent work and with state and federal tax code no longer exist, that it's just a simpler process overall. And those those reforms, I should note, you know, it's uh, they're pretty widely advocated um, by not merely, you know, free marketers like me, but, uh, you know, a lot of tax professionals and uh, law professors and the rest have looked at the independent work situation, and just said that this is, is really terribly uh, biased against independent workers for no good reason. It's just a classic case of this antiquated model of work um, just simply continuing uh, because Congress hadn't gotten around to fixing it. And we should understand that uh, when it comes to independent work, maybe a, a full-time job uh, imposes upon you burdens that you might not, uh, not might not like, that lowers your life satisfaction, and being able to choose yep. the people with whom you associate is itself a pretty valuable thing. Incredibly so, particularly in the current uh, political and social environment in which we live, right? Um, you know, independent workers have a really great advantage that they uh, don't have to worry so much about their tweets um, or uh, they don't have to uh, be associated with an employer that might have certain political views or whatever that they, they don't like. Uh, they get to control all of that. And again, that type of control is really... Uh, a huge part of the value that independent work provides and that most independent workers are uh, embracing as part of that trade-off we talked about, right? That, again, the vast majority of these relationships are voluntarily entered into by both uh, a business 
and an independent worker, fully cognizant of all of these types of trade-offs. And the best thing that policy can do is get out of the way, right? Let people engage in these voluntary transactions in the way they want to shape them. Uh, And by getting out of the way, really, it's, again, the biggest thing is to make tax treatment uh, easier, make it make it similar to being a standard worker where, you know, you really don't have to think much about it. You just that's basically, you know, what it is. You sign a little paperwork and you're done. Right. Um, And then the other thing that I think is really critical is um, a lot of our benefits are currently uh, tied to work. And we talk about this in a separate chapter. You mentioned Vanessa Calder. She's written a chapter on uh, employee benefits and what we call job lock. That's people basically being kind of stuck in a job because of their benefit situation. Um, and you know, there are a lot of those types of solutions that we propose in the benefits chapter that would be great also for independent workers, you know, decoupling health insurance from uh, your employer, uh, decoupling your 401k and your savings from your employer. Doing this um, would be a, a big advantage for independent workers who now have access to these benefits, but it's just harder. And for no, again, for no good reason, just because policy hasn't caught up with economic reality. Scott Lincecum is editor of the new Cato book, Empowering the New American Worker. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.